Chapter Three, Part One of the Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Sea: Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume One, by Frederick Wimper. Chapter Three, Part One. The Men of the Sea. Doctor Johnson, whose personal weight seems to have had something to do with that carried by his opinion, considered going to sea a species of insanity. No man, said he, will be a sailor who has contrivance enough to get himself into a jail, for being in a ship is being in a jail with the chance of being drowned. The great lexicographer knew Fleet Street better than he did the fleet, and his opinion, as expressed above, was hardly even decently patriotic or sensible. Had all men thought as he professed to do, probably for the pleasure of saying something ponderously brilliant for the moment, we should have had no naval or commercial superiority to-day, in short, no England. The dangers of the sea are serious enough, but need not be exaggerated. One writer, indeed, in serio-comic vein, makes his sailors sing in a gale, When you and I, Bill, on the deck are comfortably lying, my eyes what tiles and chimney-pots about their heads are flying, leading us to infer that the dangers of town life are greater than those of the sea in a moderate gale. We might remind the reader that Mark Twain has conclusively shown from statistics that more people die in bed comfortably at home than are killed by all the railroad, steamship, or other accidents in the world, the inference being that going to bed is a dangerous habit. But the fact is that wherever there is danger, there will be brave men found to face it, even when it takes the desperate form just indicated so that there is nothing surprising in the fact that in all times there have been men ready to go to sea. Of those who have succeeded, the larger proportion have been carried thither by the spirit of adventure. It would be difficult to say whether it has been more strongly developed through actual surroundings, as believed by one of England's most intelligent and friendly critics, who says, The ocean draws them just as a pond attracts young ducks, or through the influence of literature bringing the knowledge of wonderful voyages and discoveries within the reach of all. The former are immensely strong influences. The boy who lives by and loves the sea, and notes daily the ships of all nations passing to and fro, or who, maybe, dwells in some naval or commercial port, and sees constantly great vessels arriving and departing, and hears the tales of soldiers bold, concerning new lands and curious things, is very apt to become imbued with the spirit of adventure. How charmingly has Charles Kingsley written on the latter point! How young Amias Lee, gentle-born, and a mere stripling schoolboy, edged his way, under the elbows of the sailor-men, on Bideford Quay, to listen to Captain John Oxenham, tell his stories of heaps, seventy feet long, ten foot broad, and twelve foot high, of silver bars and Spanish treasure, and far-off lands and peoples, 
and easy victories over the coward dons how oxenham on a recruiting bent sang out with good broad devon accent who lists who lists who'll make his fortune oh who will join jolly mariners all and who will join says he oh to fill his pockets with the good red gold by sailing on the sea oh and how young lee fired with enthusiasm made answer boldly i want to go to sea i want to see the indies i want to fight the spaniards though i'm a gentleman's son i'd a deal lever be a cabin boy on board your ship and how although he did not go with swaggering john he lived to first round the world with great sir francis drake and after fight against the invincible armada the story had long before and has many a time since been enacted in various forms among all conditions of men to some however the sea has been a last refuge and many such have been converted into brave and hardy men perforce themselves while many others in the good old days of press-gangs appeared as marriott tells us to fight as hard not to be forced into the service as they did for the honour of the country after they were fairly embarked in it it may not generally be known that the law which concerns impressing has never been abolished although there is no fear that it will ever again be resorted to in these days of naval reserves training ships and naval volunteers the altered circumstances of the age arising from the introduction of steam and the greatly increased intercommercial relations of the whole world have made the jack tar pure and simple comparatively rare in these days not we believe so much from his disappearance off the scene as by the numbers of differently employed men on board by whom he is surrounded and in a sense hidden a few able-bodied and ordinary seamen are required on any steamship, but the whole tribe of mechanicians, from the important rank of chief engineer downwards, from assistants to stokers and coal-passers, need not know one rope from another. On the other hand, the rapid increase of commerce has apparently outrun the natural increase of qualified seamen, and many a good ship nowadays, we are sorry to say, goes to sea with a very motley crew of green hands, landlubbers, and foreigners of all nationalities, including Lascars, Malays, and Kanakas from the Sandwich Islands. A confusion of tongues not very desirable on board a vessel reigns supreme and renders the position of the officers by no means enviable. To obviate these difficulties and furnish a supply of good material, both to the Royal Navy and Mercantile Marine, training ships have been organized, which have been so far highly successful. Let these embryo defenders of their country's interests have the first place. Of course, at all periods, the boys, and others who entered to serve before the mast, received some training, and picked up the rest, if they were reasonably clever. The brochure of an old salt, which has recently appeared, gives a fair account of his own treatment and reception. Running away from London, as many another boy has done, with a few coppers in his pocket, he tramped to Sheerness, taking by the way a hearty supper of turnips, with a family of sheep in a field. 
arrived at his destination, he found a handsome flagship, surrounded by a number of large and small vessels. Selecting the very smallest, as best adapted to his own size, he went on board, and asked the first officer he met, one who wore but a single epaulette, whether his ship was manned with boys? He was answered, No, I want men, and pray what may you want? I want to go to sea, sir, please. You had better go home to your mother, was the answer. With the next officer, a real captain, wearing gray hair and as straight as a line, he fared better, and was eventually entered as a third-class boy, and sent on board a guardship. Here he was rather fortunate in being taken in charge by a petty officer, who had, as was often the case then, his wife living on board. The lady ruled supreme in the mess. She served out the grog, too, and, to prevent intoxication among the men, used to keep one finger inside the measure. This enabled her to the better take care of her husband. She is described as the best man in the mess, and irresistibly reminds us of Mrs. Trotter in Peter Simple, who had such a horror of rum that she could not be induced to take it except when the water was bad. The water, however, always was bad. But the former lady took good care of the newcomer, while, as we know, Mrs. Trotter fleeced poor Peter out of three pounds sterling and twelve pairs of stockings before he had been an hour on board. Mr. Mindry tells the usual stories of the practical jokes he had to endure, about being sent to the doctor's mate for mustard, for which he received a peppering, of the constant thrashings he received, in one case with a number of others receiving two dozen for losing his dinner. He was cook of the mess for the time, and having mixed his dough, had taken it to the galley oven, from the door of which a sudden lurch of the ship had ejected it on the main deck, the contents making a very good representation of the White Sea. The crime for which he and his companion suffered was for endeavouring to scrape it up again. But the gradual steps by which he was educated upwards, till he became a gunner of the first class, prove that, all in all, he had cheerily taken the bull by the horns, determined to rise as far and fast as he might in an honourable profession he was after a year or so transferred to a vessel fitting for the west indies and soon got a taste of active life this was in eighteen thirty seven forty or fifty years before the guardships were generally little better than floating pandemoniums they were used partly for breaking in raw hands, and were also the intermediate stopping-places for men waiting to join other ships. In a guardship of the period described, a most heterogeneous mass of humanity was assembled. Human invention could not scheme work for the whole, while skulking, impracticable in other vessels of the Royal Navy, was deemed highly meritorious there. A great body of men were thus very often assembled together, who resolved themselves into hostile classes, separated as any two castes of the Hindus. A clever writer in Blackwood's magazine more than fifty years ago describes them first as sea-goers, i.e. sailors separated from their vessels by illness or temporary causes. 
or ordered to other vessels who looked on the guardship as a floating hotel and having what they were pleased to call ships of their own were the aristocrats of the occasion who would do no more work than they were obliged the second and by far the most numerous class were termed wasters and were the simple the unfortunate or the utterly abandoned a body held on board in the utmost contempt and most of whom, in regard to clothing, were wretched in the extreme. The waster had to do everything on board that was menial, swabbing, sweeping, and drudging generally. At night, in defiance of his hard and unceasing labor, he too often became a bandit, prowling about seeking what he might devour or appropriate. What a contrast to the clean, orderly training ships of to-day! some little information on this subject but imperfectly understood by the public may perhaps be permitted here it is not generally known that our supply of seamen for the royal navy is nowadays almost entirely derived from the training ships first established about fourteen years ago in a late blue book it was stated that during a period of five years only a hundred and seven men had been entered from other sources who had not previously served. Training ships accommodating about 3,000 are stationed at Devonport, Falmouth, Portsmouth, and Portland, where the lads remain for about a year previous to being sent on seagoing ships. The age of entry has varied at different periods. It is now 15 to 16 and a half years. The recruiting statistics show whence a large proportion come, from the men of Devon, who contribute, as they did in the days of Drake and Hawkins, Gilbert and Raleigh, the largest quota of men willing to make their heritage the sea. Dr. Peter Comrie, R.N., a gentleman who has made this matter a study, informs the writer that on board these ships, as regards cleanliness, few gentlemen's sons are better attended to while their education is not neglected as they have a good schoolmaster on all ships of any size he says that boys brought up in the service not merely make the best seamen but generally like the navy and stick to it the order cleanliness and tidy ways obligatory on board a man-of-war make in many cases the ill-regulated forecastle of most merchant ships very distasteful to them their drilling is just sufficient to keep them in healthy condition no one can well imagine the difference wrought in the appearance of the street arab or the irish peasant boy by a short residence on board one of these ships he fills out becomes plump loses his gaunt haggard hunted look is natty in his appearance and assumes that jaunty rolling gait that a person gifted with what is called sea-legs is supposed to exhibit still we writes the doctor have known irish boys who have very rarely even perhaps seen animal food when first put upon the liberal dietary of the service, complain that they were being starved, their stomachs having been so used to be distended with large quantities of vegetables, that it took some time before the organ accommodated itself to a more nutritious but less filling dietary. 
you have only got to watch the boy from the training ship on leave to judge that the navy has yet some popularity neatly dressed clean and natty surrounded by his quondam playmates he is the observed of all observers and is gazed at with admiring respect by the street arab from a respectful distance he has perhaps learned to spin a few yarns and give the approved hitch to his trousers and while giving a favorable account of his life on board ship with his forecastle jollity and four bitter is the best recruiting officer the service can have the great point to be attended to in order to make him a sailor is that you must catch him young that a good number have been so caught is proved by the navy estimates which now provide for over seven thousand boys four thousand of the number in sea-going ships governments as governments may be paternal but are rarely very benevolent and the above excellent institutions are only organized for the safety and strength of the navy there is another class of training ships which owe their existence to benevolence and deserve every encouragement those for rescuing our street waifs from the treadmill and prison the larger part of these do not enter the navy but are passed into the merchant marine their training being very similar the government simply lends the ship thus the chichester at greenhithe a vessel which had been in eighteen sixty eight a quarter of a century lying useless never having seen service was turned over to a society a mere shell or carcass her masts rigging and other fittings having to be provided by private subscriptions her case irresistibly reminds the writer of a vessel imaginary only in name described by james hannay h m s patagonian was built as a three-decker at a cost of a hundred and twenty thousand pounds when it was discovered that she could not sail she was then cut down into a frigate at a cost of fifty thousand pounds when it was found out that she could not tack she was next built up into a two-decker at a cost of another fifty thousand pounds and then it was discovered she could be made useful so the admiralty kept her unemployed for ten years a good use was however found at last for the chichester thanks to benevolent people the quality of whose mercy is twice blessed for they both help the wretched youngsters and turn them into good boys for our ships some of these street arabs previously have hardly been under a roof at night for years together here mr Esquiros to these little ones london is a desert and though lost in the drifting sands of the crowd they never fail to find their way the greater part of them contract a singular taste for this hard and almost savage kind of life they love the open sky and at night all they dread is the eye of the policeman their young minds become fertile in resources and glory in their independence in the battle of life but if no helping hand is stretched out to arrest them in this fatal and downhill path they surely gravitate to the treadmill and the prison how could it be otherwise the question is what are these lads good for that problem mr esquiros as you with others predicted has been solved satisfactorily the poor lads form excellent raw material for our ever-increasing sea service 
the training of a naval cadet i e an embryo midshipman or midshipmite as poor peter simple was irreverently called before however the days of naval cadets is very similar in many respects to that of an embryo seaman but includes many other acquirements after obtaining his nomination from the admiralty and undergoing a simple preliminary examination at the royal navy college in ordinary branches of knowledge he is passed to a training ship which to-day is the britannia at dartmouth here he is taught all the ordinary acquirements in rigging seamanship and gunnery and to fit him to be an officer he is instructed in taking observations for latitude and longitude in geometry trigonometry and algebra he also goes through a course of drawing lessons and modern languages he is occasionally sent off on a brig for a short cruise and after a year on the training ship during which he undergoes a quarterly examination he is passed to a sea-going ship his position on leaving depends entirely on his certificate if he obtains one of the first class he is immediately rated midshipman while if he only obtains a third class certificate he will have to serve twelve months more on the sea-going ship and pass another examination before he can claim that rank End of chapter three part one